Section 14 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Rohde. The Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28. Francis I and Charles V, Part 14. In the civil as well as in the military class, for his government as well as for his armies, Francis I had, at this time, to look out for new servants. He did not find such as have deserved a place in history. After the deaths of Louise of Savoy, of Chancellor Duprat, of La Tremois, of La Palice, and of all great warriors who fell at the Battle of Pavia, it was still one more friend of Francis I's boyhood, Anne de Montmorency, who remained, in council as well as army, the most considerable and the most devoted amongst his servants. In those days of war and discord, fraught with violence, there was no man who was more personally rough and violent than Montmorency. From 1521 to 1541, as often as circumstances became pressing, he showed himself ready for anything and capable of anything in defense of the crown and re-establishment of order. Go hang me, such a one, he would say, according to Brantome. Tie you fellow to this tree, give yonder one the pike or arquebuse, and all before my eyes. Cut me in pieces all those rascals who chose to hold such a clock case as this against the king. Burn me this village, set me everything ablaze for a quarter of a league all round. In 1548, a violent outbreak took place at Bordeaux on account of the gable or salt tax, and the king's lieutenant was massacred in it. Anne de Montmorency, whom the king had made constable in 1538, the fifth of his family invested with that dignity, repaired thither at once. Aware of his coming, says Brantome, Messieurs de Bordeaux went two days' journey to meet him and carry him the keys of their city. Away, away, said he, with your keys, I will have nothing to do with them. I have others which I am bringing with me, and which will make other sort of opening than yours, meaning his cannon. I will have you all hanged. I will teach you to rebel against your king and kill his governor and lieutenant. What he did not fail to do, adds Brantome, and inflicted exemplary punishment, but not so severe assuredly as the case required. The narrator, it will be seen, was not more merciful than the constable, nor was the constable less stern or less thorough in battles than in outbreaks. In 1562, at the Battle of Drew, he was aged and so ill that none expected to see him on horseback. But in the morning, says Brantome, knowing that the enemy was getting ready, he, brimful of courage, gets out of bed, mounts his horse, and appears at the moment the march began. Whereof I do remember me, for I saw him and heard him, when Monsieur de Guise came forward to meet him to give him good day, and ask how he was. He, fully armed save only his head, answered him, Right well, sir, this is the real medicine that hath cured me for the battle which is toward and up preparing for the honor of God in our camp. In spite of this indomitable aptness for rendering the king everywhere the most difficult, nay, the most pitiless services, the constable de Montmorency nonetheless incurred, in 1541, the disfavor of Francis I. Private dissensions in the royal family, the intrigues of rivals at court, and the enmity of the king's mistress, the Duchess of Etampes, effaced the remembrance of all he had done and might still do. He did accept his disgrace. He retired first to Chantilly, and then to Echoin and there he waited for the Dauphin, when he became King Henry II, to recall him to his side and restore to him the power which Francis I, on his very deathbed, had dissuaded his son from giving back. 
The ungratefulness of kings are sometimes as capricious as their favors. The Ladies' Peace, concluded at Cambrai in 1529, lasted up to 1536, incessantly troubled, however, by far from pacific symptoms, proceedings, and preparations. In October 1532, Francis I had, at Calais, an interview with Henry VIII, at which they contracted a private alliance and undertook to raise between them an army of 80,000 men to resist the Turk, as true zealots for the good of Christendom. The Turks, in fact, under the great sultan, Solomon II, were constantly threatening and invading Eastern Europe. Charles V, as Emperor of Germany, was far more exposed to their attacks and far more seriously disquieted by them than Francis I and Henry VIII were. But the peril that hung over him in the East urged him on at the same time to a further development of ambition and strength. In order to defend Eastern Europe against the Turks, he required to be dominant in Western Europe, and in that very part of Europe a large portion of the population were disposed to wish for his success, for they required it for their own security. To read all that was spread abroad hither and thither, says William du Bellay, it seemed that the said lord the emperor was born into this world to have fortune at his beck and call. Two brothers, Mussulman pirates known under the name of Barbarossa, had become masters, one of Algiers and the other of Tunis, and were destroying in the Mediterranean the commerce and navigation of Christian states. It was Charles V who tackled them. In 1535 he took Tunis, set at liberty 20,000 Christian slaves, and remained master of the regency. At the news of this expedition, Francis I, who, in concert with Henry VIII, was but lately levying an army to offer resistance, he said, to the Turk, who entered into negotiations with Solomon II and concluded a friendly treaty with him against what was called the common enemy. As Francis had been for some time preparing to resume his projects of conquest in Italy, he had effected an interview at Marseille in October 1533 with Pope Clement VII, who was almost at the point of death, and it was there that the marriage of Prince Henry of France with Catherine de' Medici was settled. Astonishment was expressed that the Pope's niece had but a very moderate dowry. You don't see, then, said Clement VII's ambassador, that she brings France three jewels of great price, Genoa, Milan, and Naples? When this language was reported at the court of Charles V, it caused great irritation there. In 1536, all these combustibles of war exploded. In the month of February, a French army entered Piedmont and occupied Turin, and in the month of July, Charles V in person entered province at the head of 50,000 men, and de Montmorency, having received orders to defend southern France, began laying it waste in order that the enemy might not be able to live in it. Officers had orders to go everywhere and break up the bakehouses and mills, burn the wheat and forage, pierce the wine casks, and ruin the wells by throwing the wheat into them to spoil the water. In certain places the inhabitants resisted the soldiers charged with this duty. Elsewhere, from patriotism, they themselves set fire to their corn ricks and pierced their casks. Montmorency made up his mind to defend, on the whole coast of province, only Marseille and Arles. He pulled down the ramparts of the other towns which were left exposed to the enemy. For two months Charles V prosecuted this campaign without a fight, marching through the whole of province an army which fatigue, shortness of provisions, sickness, and ambuscades were decimating ingloriously. At last he decided upon retreating. From Aix to Frigis, where the emperor at his arrival had pitched his camp, all the roads were strewn with the sick and the dead pell-mell, with harnesses, lances, pikes, arquebuses, and other armor of men and horses gathered in a heap. I say what I saw, adds Martin du Bellay, considering the toil I had with my company in this pursuit. At the village of Mary, near Frigis, some peasants had shut themselves up in a tower situated on the line of march. 
Charles V ordered one of his captains to carry it by assault. From his splendid uniform the peasants, it is said, took this officer for the emperor himself and directed their fire upon him. The officer, mortally wounded, was removed to Nice, where he died at the end of a few days. It was Garcilaso de la Vega, the prince of Spanish poesy, the Spanish Petrarch, according to his fellow countrymen. The tower was taken, and Charles V avenged his poet's death by hanging twenty-five of these patriot peasants, being all that survived of the fifty who had maintained the defense. On returning from his sorry expedition, Charles V learned that those of his lieutenants whom he had charged with the conduct of a similar invasion in the north of France, in Picardy, had met with no greater success than he himself in Provence. Queen Mary of Hungary, his sister and deputy in the government of the Low Countries, advised a local truce. His other sister, Eleanor, the Queen of France, was of the same opinion. Francis I adopted it, and the truce in the north was signed for a period of three months. Montmorency signed a similar one for Piedmont. It was agreed that negotiations for a peace should be opened at Locate in Roussillon, and that to pursue them, Francis should go and take up his quarters at Montpelier and Charles V at Barcelona. Pope Paul III, Alexander Farnese, who, on the 13th of October, 1534, had succeeded Clement VII, came forward as mediator. He was a man of capacity, who had the gift of resolutely continuing a moderate course of policy, well calculated to gain time, but insufficient for the settlement of great and difficult questions. The two sovereigns refused to see one another officially. They did not like the idea of discussing together their mutual pretensions, and they were so different in character that, as Margaret de Valois used to say, to bring them to accord, God would have had to remake one in the other's image. They would only consent to treat by agents, and on the 15th of June, 1538, they signed a truce for ten years, rather from weariness of a fruitless war than from any real desire of peace. They, both of them, wanted time to bring them unforeseen opportunities for getting out of their embarrassments. But for all their refusal to take part in set negotiations, they were both desirous of being personally on good terms again, and to converse without entering into any engagement. Charles V, being forced by contrary winds to touch at the island of St. Marie, made a proposal to Francis I for an interview at Ag Mort. Francis repaired thither on the 14th of July, 1538, and went the very same day in a small galley to pay a visit to the emperor, who stepped eagerly forward and held out a hand to help him on to the other vessel. Next day, the 15th of July, Charles V, embarking on board one of the king's frigates, went and returned the visit at Ag Mort, where Francis, with his whole court, was awaiting him. After disembarkation at the port, they embraced, and Queen Eleanor, glad to see them together, embraced them both, says an eyewitness, around the waist. They entered the town amidst the roar of artillery and the cheers of the multitude, shouting, Hurrah! for the Emperor and the King! The Dauphin, Henry, and his brother Charles, Duke of Orleans, arriving boot and spur from province, came up at this moment, shouting likewise, Hurrah! for the Emperor and the King! Charles V dropped on his knees, says the narrator, and embraced the two young princes affectionately. They all repaired together to the house prepared for their reception, and, after dinner, the emperor, being tired, lay down to rest on a couch. Queen Eleanor, before long, went and tapped at his door, and sent word to the king that the emperor was awake. Francis, with the Cardinal de Lorraine and the Constable de Montmorency, soon arrived. On entering the chamber, he found the emperor still lying down and chatting with his sister the queen who was seated beside him on a chair. At sight of the king, Charles V sprang from the couch and went towards him without any shoes on. Well, brother, said the king, how do you feel? Have you rested well? 
Yes, said Charles. I had made such cheer that I was obliged to sleep it off. I wish you, said Francis, to have the same power in France as you have in Flanders and in Spain. Whereupon he gave him, as a mark of affection, a diamond valued at thirty thousand crowns, and having on the ring in which it was set this inscription, A token and proof of affection. Dilectionis testis et exemplum. Charles put the ring on his finger, and, taking from his neck the collar of the order, the golden fleece, he was wearing, he put it upon the king's neck. Francis did the converse with his own collar. Only seven of the attendants remained in the emperor's chamber, and there the two sovereigns conversed for an hour, after which they moved to the hall, where a splendid supper awaited them. After supper the queen went in person to see if the emperor's room was ready. She came back to tell him when it was, and Charles V retired. Next morning, July 16th, Francis went to see him again in his room. They heard mass together. Charles re-embarked the same day for Spain. Francis I went and slept, on the 17th at Nimes, and thus ended this friendly meeting, which left, if not the principal actors, at any rate the people all around, brimful of satisfaction and feeling sure that the truce concluded in the previous month would really at last be peace. The people are easily deceived, and whenever they are pleased with appearances they readily take them for realities. An unexpected event occurred to give this friendly meeting at Agmort a value which otherwise it would probably never have attained. A year afterwards, in August 1539, a violent insurrection burst out at Ghent. The fair deputy of the Low Countries had obtained from the estates of Flanders a gratuitous grant of 1,200,000 florins for the assistance of her brother, the Emperor, whom his unfortunate expedition in Provence had reduced to great straits for want of money, and the city of Ghent had been taxed, for its share, to the extent of 400,000 florins. The Gentes pleaded their privilege of not being liable to be taxed without their own consent. To their plea, Charles V responded by citing the vote of the estates of Flanders and giving orders to have it obeyed. The Gentes drove out the officers of the emperor, entered upon open rebellion, incited the other cities of Flanders, Ypres and Bruges amongst the rest to join them, and, taking even more decisive action, sent a deputation to Francis I, as their own lord suzerain, demanding his support and offering to make him master of the Low Countries if he would be pleased to give them effectual assistance. The temptation was great, but whether it were from prudence or from feudal loyalty, or in consequence of the meeting at Agmort, and of the prospects set before him by Charles of an arrangement touching Milanus, Francis rejected the offer of the Gentes and informed Charles V of it. The emperor determined resolutely upon the course of going in person and putting down the Gentes, but how to get to Ghent? The sea was not safe. The rebels had made themselves masters of all the ports on their coasts. The passage by the way of Germany was very slow work, and might be difficult by reason of ill will on the part of the Protestant states which would have to be traversed. France was the only direct and quick route. Charles V sent to ask Francis I for a passage, whilst thanking him for the loyalty with which he had rejected the offers of the Gentes, and repeating to him the fair words that had been used as to Milanus. Francis announced to his council his intention of granting the emperor's request. Some of his counselors pressed him to annex some conditions, such, at the least, as a formal and written engagement instead of the vague and verbal promises at Agmort. No, said the king, with the impulsiveness of his nature, when you do a generous thing, you must do it completely and boldly. On leaving the council, he met his court fool, Triboulet, whom he found writing in his tablets called Fool's Diary, the name of Charles V. A bigger fool than I, said he, if he comes passing through France. What wilt thou say if I let him pass, said the king? 
I will rub out his name and put yours in its place. Francis I was not content with letting Charles V pass. He sent his two sons, the Dauphin and the Duke of Orleans, as far as Bayonne to meet him, went in person to receive him at Chatelherault, and gave him entertainments at Amboise, at Blois, at Chambord, at Orleans, and Fontainebleau, and lastly at Paris, which they entered together on the 1st of January, 1540. Orders had been sent everywhere to receive him, as kings of France are received on their joyous accession. The king gave his guests, says Dubillet, at all pleasures that can be invented, as royal hunts, tourneys, skirmishes, fights afoot and a horseback, and in all other sorts of pastimes. Some petty incidents of a less reassuring kind were intermingled with those entertainments. One day the Duke of Orleans, a young prince full of reckless gaiety, jumped suddenly onto the crupper of the emperor's horse and threw his arms round Charles, shouting, Your Imperial Majesty is my prisoner! Charles set off at a gallop without turning his head. End of section 14